Turn in your Bible to Leviticus chapter 16. We're continuing our series to live in the presence of God. And in Leviticus 16, we are still at the foot of Mount Sinai. And if you remember, we have said that Leviticus 16 is really kind of the climax of this whole book. And so uh, since that's the case, this is a good point for us to take a look back. If you're climbing up a mountain, uh, it can be helpful at times to stop and turn around and look back and see where you've come from. And so we're going to do that for just a minute as we get started before we jump into Leviticus 16 itself. We talked about Genesis and the idea that the book of Genesis shows a movement away from God's presence in the Garden of Eden, away from the Garden, away from God's presence. In the Garden, Adam and Eve sin. God responds with curse and then with exile, and so they're sent away. There's offerings that are made, most likely at the entrance, where those uh, angels are guarding the entrance to not, to not let anyone in. But as time goes on, we see that Cain moves east. The, the entrance to the garden was on the east side. Cain moves further east, and he builds a city. In the days of Noah, we read that the thoughts and intents of man's heart were only evil continually, all the time. And so God's going to send a flood to destroy them. He does that. He saves Noah's family in the ark, and when the ark comes to rest, people disperse from there, and some people move east from the ark farther away from the presence of God, and they build the Tower of Babel. It's a means of trying to regain the presence of God in their own way. God puts an end to that. God chooses one man that he's going to work with, him and his descendants. He chooses Abram, and he brings Abram and shows him this promised land, and Abram's nephew Lot is with him. And at one point, Abram builds an altar and worships God, and from that place, Lot goes east again to Sodom. And so the movement is just continuing to go east. It's continuing to go away from the presence of God, at least symbolically. And by the end of the book, we have Abram's descendants down in Egypt. And they're in slavery in this land of death in Egypt. And so the whole movement of Genesis has been a movement away from the presence of God. It's a movement from life to death, from freedom to slavery, from God's presence and into exile. Then the book of Exodus reverses things. Exodus is a move back in the other direction. It's a movement toward God's presence at Mount Sinai. So the people are redeemed from slavery and death in Egypt, and they go through the waters of death, the Red Sea, and to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. And there, Moses, the mediator, meets with God on behalf of the people. And God gives his law, which helps them understand how they're supposed to live before him. And God gives the instructions of building the tabernacle, this place where they're going to meet with him and come into his presence. And they build the tabernacle. And the whole movement of Exodus, then, is a movement from death to life, from slavery to freedom, from exile back to the presence of God. Then when we came to the book of Leviticus, we realized the whole book takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai, and it's as if what happens on Mount Sinai is being recreated in the tabernacle so that they can take the presence of God with them wherever they go. But the great question is, how does one come into the presence of God? Leviticus 16, we've said, is the center of the book. It's also the center of the Pentateuch, those first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so the passage that we come to this morning is really, in some ways, the climax of the whole first five books. It's what they're all centered around. Now, in the book of Leviticus itself, so far, what we have seen is this. The first five chapters gave us instructions about sacrifices. Then chapters 6 through 8 give us instructions about priests. By the time we get to chapter 9, the tabernacle is ready to go. They begin the process of worship in the tabernacle, and everything is going exactly the way it's supposed to go. The Lord consumes the sacrifices. The people are in awe and reverence, and they're worshiping God. But at the beginning of chapter 10, <clears throat> Nadab and Abihu, these two priests, come into God's presence in the wrong way. They bring strange fire. They bring something unclean into God's presence. And God's fire comes out again, but this time 
instead of consuming the sacrifice, it consumes Nadab and Abihu. So now, in chapter 10, we have this problem that has been presented to us. We have, not only uncleanness has come into the presence of God in the tabernacle, we have dead bodies that are also defiling the tabernacle. And so, in multiple ways, we have this uncleanness that has been brought into the presence of God. And the question now is, what do we do about it? How are we supposed to come into God's presence anyway without this ever happening again? And the answer to what happens in chapter 10 comes in chapter 16. In between there, chapters 11 through 15, is the section that we've just finished going through about the instructions for what's clean and what's unclean so that the people have this detailed explanation of how they can come into God's presence in a clean manner. But now we come to Leviticus 16, and because it is so central, because it is so important for us to understand, we're going to do basically one message in three parts, three weeks. So you can kind of think of it all as a whole, but here's what we're going to do. Today we're going to look at Leviticus 16 itself. The ritual of the Day of Atonement. What is it communicating? What does it tell us about God? Next week, we're going to jump to the New Testament and look at the fulfillment of Leviticus 16. In other words, the atonement that Jesus provides and ask, what does that atonement accomplish? And then in the third week, what I'd like to do is to say, let's look at our culture And how does our culture seek atonement in the wrong ways? And how does the gospel answer what our culture is looking for but pursuing in the wrong ways? And so over these three weeks, that's what we're going to be taking a look at. So look with me then at chapter 16. We're going to walk through it just kind of section by section, and I'll comment on each section to explain as we go. And then once we've finished... Then I want to take a little bit of time to look at some of the effects or results of the Day of Atonement. Starting in verses 1 and 2 of Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So this is the setting. This is still, at least as the story is told here, this seems to be the same day that Nadab and Abihu died. So there's an immediacy here. God's instructions for Aaron contrast with what Nadab and Abihu did. And the danger here, of course, is that this is God's presence that we're talking about. When you come into his presence and you are not clean, you're not holy, it's very dangerous. Verse 3, but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on, and he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So you see here there's two offerings for the high priest and there's two offerings for the people. There's some details here about the high priest's clothing and the idea that he's supposed to wash and at least as this ritual was performed by the time we get to Jesus' day, The high priest was bathing his entire body at least five times during the ceremony and changing clothes ten times. There's a lot of that going on. And God's communicating something about the importance of being clean as one comes into his presence. One really important thing for you to note in these verses is this. In verse 5, the two goats are referred to together as a single offering. Now, as the, as the ritual goes on, we're going to see that two different things happen to those goats. One thing happens to one goat, and something else happens to the other goat. But we're to view them together as one offering. All right, verse 6. 
Aaron shall offer the bull <clears throat> as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. All right, so we have a bull for Aaron and his family. Some people think that family means the entire priesthood. <clears throat> and we have the two goats for the people. One goat is for the Lord. It's going to be sacrificed as a sin offering. And the other goat is for Azazel. Uh, and the, uh, the honest truth is, I don't know what that means. And, and nor do any of the commentators. They all have ideas. Uh, some people think Azazel is the name of some kind of demon or devil. And that when the goat takes the sins of the people out there, it's like the sins are returning back to their source, to where they belong. Other people think it, it's referring to a cliff that the goat would get pushed off. We know that that happened by Jesus' day. There's a number of different suggestions. I'll just tell you, I don't know what it is, and it really doesn't matter too much to understanding what is going on in this ritual. So we'll just kind of leave that on the table for today. But that goat carries the sins of the people into the wilderness. One thing that's, again, important in these verses to note is the word atonement is introduced here. Because this is the day of atonement. Let me give you a definition of atonement, and this is from um, Joel Beakey. He says that atonement is to appease the wrath of an offended party by a gift that rectifies an injustice done in order to restore a broken relationship. Let me just walk through the parts of that. It's to appease the wrath. So somebody, one of the two parties, has been offended and is wrathful or angry toward the other. And the offense here is real. It's an injustice. Not an injustice like our culture talks about injustice today. We're not talking about social justice and all the, the nonsense that goes with that. We're talking about a real injustice, an offense. And it's going to be rectified by a gift. So the person who did the offending is bringing a gift as a means of trying to make things right. And it's to restore a broken relationship. <clears throat> An illustration of this from the Bible that kind of helps to kind of just picture this. Genesis 32, you have the story of Jacob and Esau. And if you remember the story, Jacob and Esau are brothers. And Jacob has been deceitful and he has, um, he's deceived Esau and offended him. And he stole his birthright, and he stole his blessing, and then he left. And so he's been gone for many, many years, and he's gotten married, and he's got family, and he's got flocks and herds, and he's become wealthy. And Esau, too, has become wealthy. And the day comes when Jacob is going to return, and he hears, as he's coming with his whole entourage, that, that Esau is coming out to meet him with his whole entourage. And, and the picture is almost like two opposing armies about to meet. And Jacob has matured and grown up and he recognizes his problems and what he's done and he wants to make things right with Esau. And so he sends a huge gift on ahead to Esau. And Genesis 32.20 says this. It tells us that Jacob thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So all of those elements of atonement are there. There's been an offense, an injustice. Jacob wants to make it right by sending this gift. And as he sends the gift, he's hoping that this will allow him to come into Esau's presence face to face and that the relationship will be restored, that Esau will be appeased. That's atonement. Now, interestingly, as you read the story, in Exodus chapter 30 and in 38, after the people have been redeemed from Egypt, God says to them, because I've redeemed you, you need to give me atonement money. So every man has to pay a half shekel of silver. 
as you dig into the story, what you realize, you kind of think, well, these are slaves that are coming out of Egypt. What are they going to use to pay this price? Well, on their way out of Egypt, God said, I'm going to cause the Egyptians to give you their treasures. We call it plundering the Egyptians. And so on their way out, the Egyptians give them all this gold and silver and treasure, and so now they have all of this stuff. And so God actually provides the gift that the people are giving for atonement. And not only that, what they give then is melted down and used for the bases of the poles to construct the tabernacle and for the poles for the veil that separates God's presence from the holy place. So you have a hundred bases that are made from the atonement money. So quite literally, atonement is the foundation of the tabernacle. And the sacrifices for atonement in Leviticus are usually individual, but here in the Day of Atonement, we're talking about the nation as a whole. Jump in with me again in verse 11 now. <clears throat> Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So the incense that he brings in and puts on the altar there creates a cloud of smoke and that cloud of smoke protects him because he's not seeing God's presence. That's the imagery that's being communicated there. And he applies blood on the atonement cover of the Ark of the Covenant. And the language here, verse 14 says, on the east side, literally, it's eastward. And so um, some commentators, I, I think they're probably right, say that he went in and he's coming in, the entrance is on the east side, that he comes in and goes around the Ark of the Covenant, behind it now, standing on the west side of it, and applies the blood eastward. And that direction is important because that fits with what is going to happen in the rest of the account as we keep going. Verse 15, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. So the priest now does the same thing with the blood of the goat for the people in the Holy of Holies that he did before. He sprinkles the goat's blood in the Holy of Holies. Then in the remainder of the tabernacle, the, the, the outer part of the tent, then he goes out into the courtyard and does that on the altar. And all of this is to cleanse the place of God's presence. The place has been defiled and needs to be cleansed. And now verse 20, we come to the second goat. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat 
and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So he puts both hands on and presses down on the goat's head. The reason it's both hands now rather than just one hand with the other offerings is that this is not just for himself, but it's also for all the people. So this is for everybody. And so both hands go on the goat's head. This is for the iniquities, transgressions, and sins of the people. They're being transferred to the goat. Those three words are kind of put together to to catch every possible uncleanness or violation that could be there. Iniquities is just wickedness in general. Transgressions is violations of the law, and sin just means missing the mark. So any way in which the people have fallen short is dealt with by this offering. And the goat is sent out into the wilderness. It's led out there by a man who's appointed for that purpose. The first goat, the one that was killed, pictured the means of atonement, the blood. This goat pictures the effects of atonement. Sins are carried away. Verse 23. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. So Aaron bathes, he changes, he offers the burnt offerings or ascension offerings. The fat from the sin offerings is added in here. And this offering also makes atonement for him and for the people. Verse 26. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering... And the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. So here the remains are disposed of. The man who led the goat into the wilderness, he bathes and then he's allowed to come back in. And the remains of the sin offerings are carried outside the camp, and they're burned. They're disposed of. Now, verse 29. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins." It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting, and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests, and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. So the people are supposed to fast. That's what afflicting themselves means. On this day each year, and the day is a Sabbath, so there's no work that's done. The atonement signifies being cleansed from sin. It's atonement for the place and for the people, and it's to be a yearly observance. Well, that's the ritual itself. And now what I'd like to do is turn our attention to the effects. What is the result of the Day of Atonement? And we're going to do this kind of in two categories. The first category is cleansing God's house. And there's four observations I want to make there. And then the other category will be entering God's presence with four observations there. So the two things that we're kind of thinking about as as results are cleansing God's house and entering God's presence. Okay, so first, cleansing God's house. Cleanness is a focus of this section. You heard verse 30 that we just read. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Chapters 11 through 15 were all about clean and unclean. Nadab and Abihu brought uncleanness in. Strange fire and death. And their deaths are like a warning 
about defiling the tabernacle. It, it kind of brings up the urgency of this issue. So this is all about cleanness. Secondly, it's about the holiness of God. Jerry Bridges and Bob Bevington have a book called The Great Exchange, talking about what Christ has accomplished. And in there they say this, God will not forfeit his holiness to his love. God will not allow his mercy to violate the spotless integrity of his justice. Both must be maintained. And so this points us, this ritual points us to the holiness of God. Habakkuk 1.13 tells us that God is of purer eyes than to see evil. He cannot look at wrong. That's why it's so dangerous to come into his presence. Thinking about what this means, this idea of the wrath of God against sin, John Murray calls this God's holy recoil against what is a contradiction of himself. I think that phrase is helpful. A holy recoil against what is a contradiction of himself. And so all of this points to that holiness of God. But in his love for us, God does something about it. He acts to deal with the sin problem. Notice what happens when God takes action to cleanse his house of this defilement of sin. The cleansing of God's house happens beginning at the center. It moves from the inside out. If you followed through what we read in the text, verses 12 through 16 were the holy of holies. Then verses 16 and 17 is still inside the tent, but outside the holy of holies, the holy place. Then it, verses 18 and 19 is the altar that's out in the courtyard. And then verses 20 and 21, we're talking about the live goat that's by the entrance. And then the goat carries the sins of the people out through the camp and into the wilderness. And so the movement of cleansing happens starting at the center, the Holy of Holies, God's presence. And it washes out from there. It's reversing the movement of the impurity, the, the uncleanness. All the uncleanness was brought in by the people. Now it's being washed out by God. It's like cleaning up a mud mess by the door. You know, when somebody's tracked in a bunch of mud, you kind of have to start with how far in it's come and clean it all the way out. Otherwise, you're tracking stuff in and out, and it's, it needs to be as far as that dirtiness came in, you deal with it from there and push it back out. But it also points to the fact that this cleansing comes from God. He's the source of the cleansing. And when we talk about cleansing God's house, there's also a cosmic significance to this. If you remember when we talked about the tabernacle and its design a little bit, we said that it's a model of the cosmos, of all that God has created. Back in the beginning, you have Eden, which is on a mountaintop, the Bible tells us, and that's where the presence of God was. And outside that is the garden where God's people met with him. And then beyond that is the wilderness outside the garden. Well, the tabernacle is like that. The Holy of Holies is like Eden on the mountaintop. And then the holy place is like the garden where God met with the people. And then outside is the wilderness outside. And the ceremony here points to not just a cleansing of the tabernacle, and not even just of God's people, but of the whole cosmos. Because the whole thing has been defiled by sin. So the drama of what's happening here, and even picture Nadab and Abihu, what they do is like a little picture, a little miniature version of what Adam did in defiling the whole cosmos. So what we have here is a picture of the storyline even of the Bible or of our world and what God is accomplishing. The cosmic temple that God created in the beginning, because remember Eden was like a temple and Adam was like a priest, has been defiled by Adam's sin. And the earthly tabernacle that we've been looking at here in Leviticus has been defiled by sin. And the temple that is built once they come into the land is defiled by sin. What does Jesus do when he comes? Well, a lot of times we talk about it as if Jesus is cleansing the temple. Really what he's doing is passing judgment on it, like we saw when we talked about the house that has disease. It's got to be torn down stone by stone. But when that happens, in the ministry of Jesus, A.D. 70, the temple is destroyed. Jesus says what about himself? 
He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. He himself is replacing the temple. He himself is the presence of God with man. And not only that, when he makes that ultimate atonement, that cleansing by his sacrifice on the cross, he ascends into heaven and he pours out the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, on whom? On the church. And now the church is the temple of God because we have the Holy Spirit. So, First Peter, Peter writes this, chapter 2, verse 5, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And a few verses later, verse 9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Verse 11, So I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. What's he saying? You're the temple. Stay clean. God's presence needs to be in a clean place. And so the effects of the cleansing that Jesus accomplished now spread throughout the earth as we, the church, take the good news of the atonement into the world. And it spreads. And it's growing. And there's going to come a day in the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21 and 27 tells us, where nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is the cosmic significance of what is being pictured here in Leviticus 16. Well, not only is this cleansing God's house, it's also helping us with understanding entering God's presence. First of all, approaching the right way. Even on a human level, there's protocols for approaching someone important. You read the story in the Bible of Esther. And Esther was going to come into the king's presence uninvited. That's dangerous. You don't do that. Unless he holds out the golden scepter to show that he's accepting you, your life is forfeit when you do that. Because there's protocols. You don't just come into his presence. In the modern day, we can think of, for instance, the Queen of England. We, we've got some protocols here in our country, but they're not nearly as formal or ceremonial as what happens in England. In England, if you're going to meet with the Queen, men are supposed to bow from the neck. Women are supposed to give a small curtsy. The first time you address her, you say, Your Majesty, and from there on out, you call her Ma'am. You're supposed to be early. You want to arrive before the queen because you don't want to make her wait. You follow her lead. You don't speak until she speaks. You don't sit until she sits. You don't eat until she eats. And when you sit down to eat at a formal dinner, the person on the right-hand side of the queen is who she will speak to during the first course of the meal. The person on her left-hand side is the person she will speak to during the second course of the meal. There's a story about a Formula One driver who was honored with being able to attend a dinner with the queen, and he was seated on her left-hand side, and he tried talking to her during the first course of the meal, and she said, no, you talk that way during this course, and I'll talk this way, and when the second course is served, I will speak to you, helping him understand the protocol. You don't leave the queen's presence without permission, and you don't turn your back toward the queen. All of those are just protocols because she's someone exalted or important. Well, Nadab and Abihu approached God's presence the wrong way. They brought strange fire. They didn't approach according to God's commands. And Leviticus 16 is outlining for us how it is that we can approach God's presence. The movement of Leviticus is toward greater intimacy or closeness with God. Really, the movement of all of Scripture is that. The separation happens in Genesis 3, and from there on out, the story can be told in terms of moving back into God's presence. How can that happen? And ultimately, it is Jesus that the Day of Atonement is pointing to. He's the one who approaches God's presence. And so Hebrews describes it this way. In chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest 
of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And that's why the veil was torn at Christ's crucifixion. God was signaling that the way is now open into his presence. That means then that we can approach. And so as Hebrews picks up this idea of Jesus' approach, it goes on to tell us in chapter 10, verses 19 to 22, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's important to approach the right way. We also see, though, this tension of love and justice. In our era, we take for granted that God is love. That's kind of a given. Well, it's true that God shows amazing love toward us. Listen to the language of Micah 7 describing this love. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. But here's the thing. We really only see the love of God when we first understand his justice and his righteousness. Romans 2, 5 and 6. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. That holy God who is wrathful toward sin is the God into whose presence we are entering. And in the atonement in Leviticus 16, we see both. In the two goats, we see God's justice in that the goat is killed on behalf of the people. But we also see in the other goat that the people's sins are sent away and the people are restored to God's presence. And that's what the psalmist is expressing in Psalm 85.10 when he says, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Ultimately, the glory of God's love is that it drives him to take the execution of justice against my sin on himself. And love and faithfulness meet. There's also here the idea of re-entering Eden. Atonement is what enables us to return to Yahweh. It's a reversal of the exile that happened from Eden. Now remember, the tabernacle is like a little miniature Mount Sinai, and they both represent the place of the presence of God. They both also kind of point backward to the original earthly place of God's presence, the mountain of Eden. So the Holy of Holies where God's presence was centered, is like the summit of the mountain. You can picture Adam and Eve were sent away from that. Well, the high priest's journey into the Holy of Holies is like an ascent up the mountain to the presence of God. It's like a return to Eden. It's reversing Adam's exile from Eden. 
And so the high priest returns to the point of the original creation where that impurity happened and he pours out the atoning blood in that place to restore the covenant relationship with God. And the effects of that then wash out everywhere else. The mountain of God, Eden, or the Holy of Holies, is the opposite of the wilderness. The wilderness is like the waters of chaos or non-creation. But when the scapegoat leaves the tabernacle and goes out into that wilderness, it's taking our sins or the, the chaos and disorder that comes from sin and it's taking it away from the creation. So, if your mind goes back to Adam and you think when Adam was expelled from the garden, the question was, how can we ever return to God's presence? Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? And the answer is, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now, the high priest symbolically has clean hands and a pure heart. He's washed, he's bathed, he's, he's presented the offerings, he's the one who is symbolically clean and coming in. But he was only a shadow, a type of the only one who may ever enter truly into God's presence on his own merits. The only one who truly had clean hands and a pure heart, Jesus. It's Jesus who restores us to the presence of God. And then finally, under this category, goat geography. This is important to see. Picture the two goats. Now, we, we talked earlier, earlier about how the movement eastward is a movement away from God's presence. Adam and Eve were exiled east out of the garden. Cain, Cain went east and built a city. After the flood, the Babel Tower builders moved east to build their tower. Lot moves east to Sodom. Picture the two goats on the Day of Atonement. They both begin at the entrance to the tabernacle, to the, to the courtyard. They're on this east-west line that runs from God's presence in the Holy of Holies through the holy place through the courtyard where the altar is, to the entrance, through the camp, and out into the wilderness. Picture that east-west line. In one direction from where those two goats are is the source of life. In the other direction is death. In one direction is God's presence. In the other direction is the wilderness. The goat that is killed as an offering brings the people of Israel into God's presence. The scapegoat takes Israel's sins into the wilderness. This whole thing is a picture that it's going to take the shedding of blood to bring man back into God's presence and that sin ultimately drives you out of God's presence into the wilderness separated from him even for all eternity. And of course, this then points us to Jesus. And as you think about Jesus as the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement, first of all, there was a need for a sinless high priest. The fact that the high priest first had to make atonement for his own sin shows that the atonement for the nation had to be made by someone who was sinless. So Hebrews 7 26 and 27 tells us, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is our sinless high priest, better than all the other high priests. Second, there's a need for an ultimate sacrifice of atonement. The Day of Atonement happened every year. Every year it was, yet again, necessary to cleanse the tabernacle. 
and to offer sacrifices yet again for the sins of the people. That pointed to the need for a greater sacrifice, one that would be the final, lasting sacrifice. So Hebrews 10, 11 to 14 tells us, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There will never again be a need for another sacrifice. Now, very brief side note here. This is from Jewish literature, not from the Bible. I bring it up because I think it's an interesting outside verification. This does not carry the weight of Scripture, though. The Mishnah is Jewish teachings of the rabbis from the first several hundred centuries after Christ, after the destruction of the temple. And in one of them, Yoma is the tractate, 39b, there are several unusual occurrences that are recorded. One has to do with the scarlet cord, which was used to lead the scapegoat out into the wilderness. Now, it was traditionally, every year, hung up where the people could see it afterward. And it was said that it often used to miraculously turn white. Isaiah 1.18, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And so in the mind of the people, that indicated forgiveness of sins. But Yoma records that for the 40 years before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD, the cord never turned white. In other words, from the time of Jesus' crucifixion onward, the cord never turned white because those offerings weren't effective. Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice had already been completed. Now remember, this is Jewish sources, not Christian, that are noting these historical observations. They go on to say, during those same 40 years, the temple doors continually opened by themselves. They couldn't keep them shut. Zechariah 11.1 said, Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. And the rabbis interpreted this occurrence of the temple doors continually opening as indicating that the temple would be burned, which happened in 70 AD. The last one, the menorah. You can picture the, the Jewish menorah, the candlestick with the seven candles. There was one of those in the holy place inside the tabernacle and then inside the temple in Jesus' day. And the, the, the light on the westernmost end of the menorah was always left lit because it was the one that each day was used to relight the others so that the temple practices could go on that day. Well, during those 40 years, this light would not stay lit. In a Christian interpretation, it's as if God was turning the lights out in the temple, shutting it down, because it was done. It was judged, and the final sacrifice had come, and there was no more need for it. We also see in the Day of Atonement a need for the high priest to reappear. Jewish sources tell us that when the high priest went in on the Day of Atonement, into the Holy of Holies, into God's presence, the people watched eagerly for him to reappear, to come out. In fact, the instructions that were given to the high priest called for him to come out of the Holy of Holies and into the holy place and to pray there, but the instructions specifically said, do it briefly because the people are waiting for you to reappear. And if he was in there too long, they would think that he had died in God's presence. And when he reappeared, they rejoiced because he was alive and that signified that God had accepted the sacrifice of atonement. Jesus reappeared after three days. His resurrection signals to us that God has accepted his sacrifice of atonement. Our great high priest ever lives to make intercession for us. And the day of atonement also signals the need for a high priest who brings people with him. The high priest in Leviticus went alone 
into the Holy of Holies. But our high priest, Jesus, has made it possible for us to go into the Holy of Holies, not just him. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He's a forerunner because he goes first and we follow. We get to come into God's presence now too. Picture this. The Holy of Holies in the tabernacle was 10 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits with length height. It's a cube. The same is true when the temple was built, although the dimensions are bigger. There is only one other cube in all of Scripture. Revelation 21, the heavenly Jerusalem. The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. He measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stairs. Its length and width and height are equal. The new heavenly Jerusalem is a cube. Not literally, but that's how it's described in this vision. And the number 12,000 is 12, the number of the people of God, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, times 1,000. 1,000 is the number of fullness. It's kind of like when God says that he owns the cattle on 1,000 hills. That doesn't mean that if you counted out 1,000 hills and then you get to the next one, the thousand and first hill, he doesn't own those. No, a thousand just means the fullness. He owns them all. So 12 times a thousand, 12,000 stadia. This is the fullness of all of God's people. And it's a cube. Why? Because God's presence is there. God is with his people for all of eternity. That's what's being communicated. So Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And all of that is true because of Jesus. Because of his atonement, we have been welcomed back into God's presence. That's what the Day of Atonement was pointing to. So Jesus has secured access for us into God's presence. He has secured cleansing and forgiveness of sins. And as you think of the, even the directional clues in that passage in Leviticus 6 and the story of the Bible, listen again to the words of Psalm 103 that we read this morning, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west... So far does he remove our transgressions from us. And Jesus has commissioned us with the good news of the atonement. We are to take his presence into the world and to tell people what Jesus has done to restore people to God. So we have access and we have forgiveness of sins, which is reason to praise him. And we have a commission to go take that good news into the world. Lord, I pray that we would be people who take seriously the commission you've given us. We thank you for the atonement that you have given. And for the picture that's there in Leviticus 16 and how graphically you illustrated all of this for us. We pray that we would appreciate the atonement. That we would live in your presence, and that we would have a desire to be holy and clean because we are your people. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.